0: Okay, we are going to continue in the book of Matthew today. We're actually going to finish chapter 24. Um, which There's been a lot in this chapter, and I'm sure we'll be referring back to it a lot. But last week, if you remember, I'll just try to catch up briefly. Last week, uh, we discussed the signs of the last generation, how to identify that before the second coming. right? And we also learned that the same people that see the events of the 70th week or of the tribulation period will also be the last generation, the one that sees the return of Christ. The thing that was kind of strange to us last week was that we learned that we could be that last generation. Now, I'm not saying we are, but we could be. I mean, if, if there's nothing left to happen before the rapture. So if the Lord were to come and rapture us today, I'd like to think that, you know, we'd make it seven more years and make us that generation, What do you think? So, I mean, it could happen. It's it's imminent. That could be the case. Uh, because nobody really knows when he's coming. So today, kind of the theory or the the point today is to teach people to be ready. Uh, That's kind of where we left off last week and where we're going to pick up today. Now, today's title uh, is The Tale of Two Servants, and I believe it'll be obvious why, uh, because today we're going to discuss two different kinds of servants. Uh, The first is the faithful servant, and the second uh, is the evil servant. Now, this message, I want you to understand, could be applicable to pre- and post-rapture people, and I'll explain that as we go, you know, further into the message But Jesus is going to really try to drive home that your faith isn't a part-time position. It's something we have to live all the time so that we can be expectant and be ready for Christ to return. So let's jump right in. That's as fast as I can catch up. Okay, Matthew 24, starting in verse 42. It says, therefore, what? Be on the alert. alert. (laughs) You see the person back going, huh? (laughs) Never mind. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this that at the head of the house had known at what time uh, of the night the thief was coming he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into for this reason you must uh, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will now this is a really really awesome illustration it seems strange but it's an awesome illustration cuz the, the 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 point of this illustration is about a thief and a homeowner and No one knows when they're going to be broken into, right? This is talking about how you can never understand. You never know. It's not like you get up one day and go, "Gosh, it's a beautiful day. This is a good day to get broken into. I should be ready tonight." You never know when that's going to happen. You never know when something like that's going to happen to you. And it's an it's a perfect illustration because you don't know when the Lord's coming back, right? I've never seen criminals send save the date cards out before they rob you, (laughs) right? So they generally like to catch people off guard, right? So listen, when I was this kind of jumped out to me when I was preparing this, because when I was a kid, we lived in the country, which isn't the country now, because they built all around it, but at that time, it was just basically cornfields around us. And so, right off of Six is where we lived, and it made it a real easy target to break into, because they could just pull off Six, come down, rip us off, take stuff out of our yard, take stuff out of our barn, and just take off. And it was happening a lot. I mean, a lot. And I remember one time... When I was a kid, we used to this is back before, you know, there was gaming systems and back before there were phones, you know? Back when people actually went out outside when they were kids and did stuff in the summer. How many people camped in their front yards when they were kids? There we go. Kids now walk outside and they go, Oh my gosh. (laughs) Delight. You know. But me and my buddies would camp. That's one of the things we did. And we had this really cool tent set up and I heard like noises. And I was too lazy to get up, but um, the next day we got up and we found the tent ripped right off the stakes. And we heard the dog barking, so I figured he you know, might have scared them and they took it quicker than they would have, but they took it nonetheless. Now I remember thinking to myself at 14, because at 14 you have all the answers. <laughs> and I started thinking to myself at 14, I'm going to catch this guy. But here's the thing is, you don't know when they're coming. That's what makes them good criminals, is you don't know when they're coming. And I remember sitting up with my shotgun, hoping that I would catch that person. I know you're thinking, really, Chris, you're going to preach about having a gun and waiting for someone. I was then and am now a redneck. That's how we handle things. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how we do it, right? But what's really creepy about the whole thing is that a good criminal will case your home. They will watch, see, you know, your habits. When do you come and when do you go? You know, do you get up much through the night? Is anybody coming and going through the night? They know when the perfect time to hit you is. They know that. And that's what kind of makes this whole illustration come together for me because if you think about it, the greatest thief in this world is the devil. The Bible says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his whole purpose, right? And because he's trying to steal from you, he's going to be casing you. He knows what it takes To get you distracted and that's what he's trying to steal from you He's trying to steal your attention and your focus that you would be putting on god He's trying to take that from you and we're real easy. We give it up pretty quick Right, but he cases us enough to know what it's going to take And he comes after it He gets all of our attention off of god gets us worrying about everything but jesus now. Let's be honest People like to act self-righteous But have you ever gone weeks? Without the lord really being a thought in your mind because things are going on raise your hand if you've ever been there I mean, just, and then all of a sudden it hits you. Oh, my gosh. You know, sometimes what can be distracting you from that time with with Jesus, you ready for this, can be church. I know everybody's looking at me like, what? But listen, sometimes we get so active in making sure we're there every time the doors are open and that we're in every group and that we're doing this and that we're doing that and we're making sure we're in the fundraisers and stuff that it becomes more of a job and less of, of a you know, of a personal relationship, and we find that we have spent very little time ourselves with God. We've done it all, you know, corporately. And that happens to pastors, it happens to everybody. But anything he can use to take your attention off of God, he'll do it. And he's a good thief. He knows what it takes, and, and he gets that from you, right? He takes it. What his goal is, is he's hoping that he can get you so distracted that when the Lord returns, it'll be a big surprise to you. You won't be prepared. You won't be doing what you're supposed to do. That's his goal, is to distract you to that level. Now, last week we talked about the days of Noah. How many people remember that? Good. (laughs) That's scary. There should be more. But anyway, right? In the times of Noah, though, people were very distracted. He did a great job of stealing their attention, right? To the point they pretty much didn't even think about God. It was like it wasn't even a thought in their mind. So he had successfully stolen their attention, And so when Noah says, hey, you know, listen, the world's going to come to an end with water, they're like, whatever, what are you bringing this up for? God's not going to do that, you know, and they just blew it completely off because God wasn't even a thought in their mind, didn't even think about it until the first raindrop fell, obviously. But this is an example of him successfully distracting people from God, right? And this can happen so easily in our lives. I'm going to be honest, there are times that I will remember after a day or so, and I'll think, my gosh, I haven't even thought about it. I haven't thought about him and me. I've thought about, you know, what I've got to do at the church. I've thought about what I've got to, you know, who I've got to visit. But just having that thought of of the personal time between him and I, there are times that I stop and think, when have I done that last? Has anybody been there? You know what I mean? It doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It just means that if you're faithful to church and you're doing a lot of stuff for the Lord, the enemy will even try to steal your attention from God using that kind of the stuff. It can be anything. It can be our jobs. I mean, it can be bills, just daily problems. But there are times when he just steals our total focus from God. He just steals it, right? And this is is the whole goal, and this is why he used this illustration, right? Now, the fortunate thing is, and, and lucky for us, God never forgets about us. Even when we forget about him, he never forgets about us, and he never forgets about a promise that he's made to us, Right, his promises stay the same. He said if we believe, he'd give us eternal life. And he will. He always keeps his word. Not because we deserve it. He gives it to us in spite of us. Okay, thank God for that. But he also said, just like I told you, if you believe you'll have eternal life, I'm telling you, believe while you have the chance because I'm coming again. Actually coming twice. I'm coming once to rapture my church and another time at the end of the 70th week or the tribulation period to gather those people who have believed in my nation, the nation of Israel that has turned to me during that time. I'm going to return to bring those home with me. So the whole point of this whole illustration here was just to say, listen, God's word is sure. He can't change that. What he can change is your focus and your attention and keep you from being ready. And to be honest, church, he's doing a pretty good job. Let's be honest. He's doing a pretty good job, right? So it's really important here. What he's trying to get his disciples to teach everybody is listen, always be prepared. Always live expectant because you don't know when he's going to appear. And then the next illustration, the the actual tale of two servants here that we're going to talk about in verses 45 through 47. This is beautiful because he actually says, not only do you not know when he's coming, but you have to think about what condition you're going to be in when he does come. And this is talking to believers and unbelievers alike. Okay, let's jump into this. Matthew 24, starting in verse 45 says, who then is the faithful and sensible slave? Okay, hold on a second. Slave, servant. Okay, I don't want you to get all distracted with that word. It actually means servant. Uh, sensible slave, servant, um, whom his master uh, put in charge of his household to give uh, them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Okay, now the first part of this illustration is, is, is about a faithful servant, right? And he uses a hypothetical situation here about a a landowner and his servants. And it's pretty simple. He says, listen, I'm going to leave. Here's what I want you to do. While I'm gone, take care of the livestock, take care of my people, take care of my, my homestead, take care of everything, and then I will come back later. Take care of it for me. Right? It was really, really simple. And notice what he said. He said, blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes back. Now, here's what he didn't say, and this is what I think confuses us sometimes. He didn't say, blessed is this servant because of his many talents and abilities, because he can do so many great things. He wasn't blessed because of what he could do. He was blessed because he did what he was asked to do. Listen, one of the biggest excuses I get from people for not serving God, one of the biggest, is that I don't really have any abilities. There's nothing really I can do. I can't sing, and I'm like, neither can I. I can't sing. Listen, the only time I sing when I think it's safe is when everyone else is singing to drown me out. And you know what one of my greatest fears is in life? That everybody's going to stop singing and my voice will jump out. <laughs> that's, that's what scares me to death. And then everybody's going to go, oh, gosh, he is called to preach. Certainly isn't called to sing. Right? They think, well, I can't sing, so I'm not important. That's not, that's not true. Or they say, well, I'm not good with people, so I'm not, you know, I'm not a good speaker. I'm, I'm not a good teacher. I'm not going to be a Sunday school teacher. I'm not going to be a pastor. I'm not going to be a deacon. So I just really, there's not really nothing I can do to serve God. I, I hear this all the time, but this servant could be blessed doing one thing, whatever God asks him to do. Listen, sometimes we get caught up in trying to look at what the big things are. When the biggest thing and the most important thing you can do is do what God asked you to do. And there's so many things in there, and none bigger than loving your neighbor. You know what? Love is the greatest weapon we have in the Christian arsenal, and every believer is capable of showing that to other people. Every believer is capable of making the love of Christ be available to people they know by showing it to them in their lifestyle and how they speak. That's something you can do just by doing what he said. Listen, God never said, you know what, I'm going to create all these really special people then all these bums that I can't do anything with. They're just going to wait around until I come back. That's not the case. Everyone has a purpose. We say it all the time. You know, everyone has a purpose. We're here on purpose for a purpose. But sometimes I think because it's not one of the, you know, the things that's noticeable, we don't think we do. If you want to know where to get started serving God, look at his word and do what he asks you to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Show kindness and mercy and grace to other people. These are the things you can do and be just as blessed as anyone else, right? You just have to do what he asked you to do. The reason we're on this planet is to serve God. That's the whole reason we're here, right? And listen, there are a few things you can always count on with God, which makes it kind of nice when you're thinking about what you're, how many people have ever had the battle in their life with what they're supposed to be doing for God? Anybody ever had that battle? And I think we make it a lot tougher than what it is. I've said this a million times, but what I always tell people is if you're good at it, start there. You know what I mean? That's generally a good place to start. If you can't sing, that's not it. Don't do that. Please, Lord, don't do that. Right? But whatever you're good at, start there. But there's a few things that that you can depend on with God when he's giving you directions to be a servant that makes it a little bit easier. First and foremost, God is not trying to trick us or set us up for failure. Okay, that's not what he's trying to do. When I was a kid, I was raised in a religion that was very hellfire and brimstone. Matter of fact, a a lot of hellfire and brimstone. I don't even know if we talked about anything other than hellfire and brimstone. You know, I knew there was a hell and I was going. That's what I gathered from my years in that church. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. It almost gave me a a skewed view of God. Like when something would go wrong in my life, (laughs) Here was the spiritual advice I'd get. Well, you must have done something wrong and he sent it on you. And I remember thinking to myself, man, not only am I going to hell, but he's sending all these trap doors for me everywhere, man. You know, I just didn't see God as invested in my success spiritually. I didn't see that. But that's so wrong because God never tries to trap us and he never tries to trick us, he doesn't try to set us up for failure. Right? Another thing, God won't ask you to do anything. That you're incapable of doing if he asks you to do it you can do it and you can do it well that's something we have to remember he never asks you to do something that you're not capable of doing and capable of doing well but what happens is when we feel God leading us to do something remember the thief the burglar the enemy we talked about he starts sneaking in and saying are you sure you can do that are you sure that's what God wants you to do you don't want to step on anybody's toes. Oh, my gosh, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that. People, I say, well, I want to help out around the church, but I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I'm like, stomp on them. I don't care. Stomp on them. We need the help. But he starts whispering in your ear. I remember before I entered into the ministry, I felt this calling, and I, I wanted so bad to share the gospel, and I was, I was starving for the word. I was reading the word all the time, and every time I would get the nerve up to, to admit that that's what I should do, the enemy would say, are you serious? Everybody remembers you, Chris. You were a drunk. You closed half these bars down. No one is going to listen to what you have to say. Sit down and shut up and say amen and don't do another thing. That's what was, I mean, the enemy tried to take it from me every time the Lord put it in my mind. Every time. What I didn't know at that time was he wouldn't ask me to do it if I were not capable of doing it and doing it in in a way that was pleasing to him. But that's when the enemy steps in. We've got to understand that about God. He's not going to ask you if you can't do it. The third thing, anything, anything he asks you to do is always going to be for your benefit or someone else's benefit. Always. Right? He's never, never going to give you something to do for no reason. right? It's always going to have a purpose. right? And he always rewards those who do their best. right? Now, let me explain that. Sometimes you feel like if you can't be perfect at something, you can't do it. You ever been there? You know think about your kids. Now, when I was a kid, this is a different era, different time. How many people here made ashtrays? Now, you don't do that anymore. They don't have you make ashtrays in school anymore. And it's funny, because everybody had to make an ashtray. They just assumed someone in your family smoked, right? Somewhere, somebody's smoking. If not, make them start, because you're building an ashtray today. And we would build these ashtrays, and they were terrible, there was always that nerdy, artistic kid. No, i just kidding. He comes out and goes, look, and it looked like it was from Tiffany's, you know. And then there's the rest of us where it looks like a pile of dog poop <laughs> with a hole in the middle to, to, you know, put your ashes in. So, I mean, I remember bringing that home to my parents who did not smoke. And I couldn't decide which color because I was ADD then too. And so it was like multiple colors. It was like all sorts. Of, it was nasty, man. And I bring it home, and my mom didn't miss a beat. She's like, oh, my gosh, that is such a beautiful ashtray. Ashtray. <laughs> that is beautiful. I'm going to put this right on the table where no one smokes. Thank you. <laughs> Listen, when your kids try to do something for you, and they're giving it all they have, and their, their, their whole purpose is to please you, are you ever going to push them away from that? You're always going to accept what they've given you, if they've given you their best. Am I right? I can't see too many people looking at their kid going, Serious? That's an ashtray? You're terrible. Go back and find something else. Nobody's going to do that. God knows when you're given everything you have and why you're given it. So, don't be afraid to step out. Right? This is, this is what he's trying to get through to us. This servant, the only thing he did was do what he was asked. That's it. And God blessed him. Now let's talk about the second servant. Matthew 24, starting in verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, uh, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour which he does not know and will cut him to pieces. I will explain that, okay? And will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrite. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. First of all, We've covered this before. Weeping and gnashing of teeth doesn't always mean hell. It doesn't always mean hell. Okay? It means a place of regret, suffering. It doesn't always mean hell. I just wanted to throw that in. But look at this this other servant. And if you're honest, you're going to find that you've been this servant at least one time in your life. Okay? We've all been this servant at least one time in our life. Because this servant thought, you know what? He's probably going to be gone a long time. And I didn't say I'd do it right away. You know, he just said to make sure it's done. So, I mean, I might be able to start doing this a month from now, right? So he, he automatically believes the owner isn't going to be back for a long time. Did you ever do that when your parents gave you something to do when they're leaving town? Well, let's be honest with each other now, right? And you're going, yes, mom, dad, I will do that because I am your beloved son. And I always do what you ask. And you're like, bye-bye now. Have fun. Take your time. And they're gone. Call our friends. Let's have the party. How many people have ever been there? You know what I mean? You put it off. Right? It's the same thing. He's putting it off. He's saying, yeah, sure, I got it. I'll feed them. I'll take care of them. And as soon as he's out the door, he says, I'll do that another time. I'll wait to the last second. Right? Another thing about when I was a kid, I'm going to throw in there. I didn't want to be like the Christians I saw around me. And I thought like this man that it was going to be a long time before God ever did anything. So I thought, you know what? I don't want to be like these Christians. I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to be looking down my nose at other people. I don't want to wear polyester that much, (laughs) right? I don't want to sit in church for that long amount of time. You know, they don't have any fun at all. So you know what I'm going to do? I'll wait till I'm 90, then I'll become a Christian because then there's nothing fun to do anyway, (laughs) right? I mean, ask Ben. He doesn't have any fun at that age. (laughs) But think about it. We've all been here. I used to feel that way, right? And this is, this is the way he felt. I'll just put it off to the last second, right? Besides, what the master doesn't know won't hurt him. Anybody ever use that one? Right, what my parents don't know, except I was, I could never get away with anything. I left too many clues. But he was just putting it off, right? And the thing is, is he was missing something really important for this plan to work. He didn't know when he was coming back. You couldn't successfully pull this plan off without knowing exactly when the owner is going to come back. So not only does he not do what the owner asked him to do, he starts beating the other servants that he's supposed to be caring for. He starts beating him and treating him terribly. Right? Evidently, he can't handle authority. Anybody ever met the person that as soon as you give him a little bit of authority, they lose their mind? Anybody ever met that person? They turn into a dictator from a third world country as soon as they get a little bit of authority? That's because they don't understand the authority they were given was not their own, but their master's, and they were to use it to honor and glorify him. He didn't get it. He starts beating and mistreating his other servants, right? And not only that, he goes and starts hanging out with the drunkards and partying. Just forgets about everything he's supposed to do. And obviously, from the way he acted, he didn't respect His boss. Right. And and he didn't really fear him. Right. So let's look and see what happens. It says that when he comes back. That he does what? Take a look at this. Matthew 24 says the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour which he does not know and will what? (laughs) Cut him in pieces. Cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, this is not a slasher film. Okay, this, this isn't literally him cutting them into pieces. Okay, it's not what it literally means, right? In the, in the Greek, this literally translates to severely punish. It meant that he was going to severely punish this slave. Once again, he's using hyperbole right hyperbole just means making an exaggerated statement or a claim that is not meant to be taken literally like have you ever said i am going to kill him anybody here ever said that really how about your husband you ever say about your husband there we go right how many people ever talking about your kids go oh i'm gonna beat them to death when they say if ever say that <laughs> everybody's going no just you terrible father now, obviously, you're not really going to kill your husband, and obviously, you're really not going to, you know, beat your children to death. I, you know, <laughs> there's some people out there thinking, could I get away with it? <laughs> but, I mean, it's obviously it's just hyperbole, and this is what he meant. He didn't mean that he was going to come back and go, "Oh, I see you haven't done what I said," <laughs> you know, and lash them into pieces. Not what he was talking about. He was just going to have to suffer severe punishment. Okay, and now I believe now that we've seen the two servants that this. This story can actually have a dual application, right? And I want to explain that to you. I'm watching my time here, right? Now, first of all, we were talking about the tribulation last week, right? We were talking about the Jews during that tribulation period. And I believe one interpretation is this is a warning to the Jews during that tribulation time to recognize the time frame they were in and to believe because their time was short. It was limited. They didn't know when the second coming was going to happen. And God was merciful enough to give them a second chance after they had rejected his son. He says, listen, I'm going to give you a chance as a nation to believe. So I'm giving you these last seven years in which a lot of prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And you should be able to see what's going on and know what time it is and believe before the clock runs out. Nobody knows exactly when Jesus is coming at the end of that seven years, but they know that he is. And I believe this is him saying, listen, recognize your situation and take advantage of it before it's too late. I think, I think that's one of those things that could be talking about. Because the Jew that doesn't take advantage of that second opportunity during the seven-year tribulation period, the one who doesn't believe, there's no third chance. Because when he comes back, it's too late. Then he'll have to meet severe punishment. And what would that severe punishment be if they didn't believe? It would be hell. Now, as soon, it's, whenever I preach on hell, which is rarely, I do it when I come across it. But I always get that person that looks at me like, I just can't believe God would do that. Okay, you're correct. God does not do that. God never puts anyone in hell. But it is just as real as heaven. And the people that go there, are you ready for this? Choose to. They choose to. I'm not saying they, you know, one day go, you know what sounds good? A timeshare in hell. That's not what I'm talking about. They have an opportunity to believe, to partake in the free gift of grace. God says, listen, I don't care what you've done, what you are currently doing. I don't care what your reputation is. I don't care what your family's like. I don't care what people think of you. If you can just trust that what my son does what it did was enough to guarantee your eternal life, I'll give it to you. If you turn that down, the free gift, then you are choosing the alternative because there's only two places you can go to turn that down, a free opportunity, not based on anything other than God's love and grace to go to heaven. If you walk away from that, you can't say it's God's fault. You're in hell. That cannot be on God. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine someone's drowning and there's people throwing life preservers all around him and he's going, nope, I got this. When he drowns, it's on him, isn't it? There were life preservers all around him, and he wouldn't take them. It's the same thing. If people refuse to believe, even though it's made completely free to them, and then they're put in this tribulation period where all this prophecy is coming true, and these Jews knew about this prophecy, and yet they still refuse to believe, I don't think you can really blame that one much on God. This is their last opportunity, right? Now, Another interpretation here is I believe it can be a warning for all believers, whether before or after the tribulation, right? Because no matter when someone believes, no matter when that happens, whether it be before the tribulation, during the tribulation, whenever they believe, you have an obligation to serve God. You do have an obligation to serve him. I love what 1 Peter 4 says, starting in verse 10. It says, as each one has received a special gift, what? It says, employ it. Okay, as each one has received what? Do what? So as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There's two things we learned from this. First of all, each person has what? A special gift. Each person. Everyone has a special gift. And everyone is supposed to employ it in serving God. Right now, during the tribulation, obviously, you know, the seven years, the time is short. But even now, we don't know how long this time is, how, mo- how much time we have before he returns. There's nothing left to happen. Nothing. We've talked about that time and time again. So if you have a gift, you know when the time to use that is now, because if the Lord were to come back tomorrow. That's when you would stand in account for how you've used the gift you were given. How would it be? Listen, believers, we're not going to be judged for heaven and hell, but when he comes back, there are repercussions for believers who don't do what they're supposed to do. And I'll talk about that here in a minute. But the timing is a lot like any other time, whether it be during the tribulation or before. We don't know when he's coming. We need to take advantage of the time we have now. Because believers, if we don't, there is discipline for us. And here's what that discipline is. We have the opportunity to serve in the millennial kingdom. Now understand for a second what that means. Serving in the administration with Christ. Can you imagine only answering to him with Christ in this world, right? Serving in that administration with perfect righteousness, the perfect love of God, being the one in charge on this earth. Imagine the the Jews, this is what they dreamed of. This was their goal in life, was to be able to serve in the Messianic kingdom. This was their goal. But when he returns, if you're not doing what you're supposed to do as a believer, you can lose that opportunity to serve. And that means that for a thousand years, you sit the bench. How many people want to sit the bench for two minutes? I mean, let's just be honest here. I've never had a kid come up to me and say, Coach, I would love to try out for your team, but I want to try out for the position of sitting on the bench. (laughs) Can I have that position, please? you know and imagine a thousand years of sitting and watching other people serve with Christ in this messianic kingdom that's been foretold for oh my gosh it just it'd be a tragedy and in, in Timothy they talk about this second Timothy chapter 2 starting in verse 11 it says it, it is a trustworthy statement for if we died with him we will also live with him that's talking about believing becoming a christian having eternal life verse 12 if we endure with him we will also what Reign where? Reign with Him where? In the kingdom. It says if we deny Him, He will also deny us. What? The ability to reign. I think I put that in there, didn't I? Yeah. He will deny us what? There you go. Right? He'll deny us the ability to reign with Him. That's what happens if He comes back and finds that we're not doing what we're supposed to. Verse 13, though, shows us about how loving He is. It says, if we are faithless, He remains... Faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So what he's saying is, listen, if you deny me, if you don't do what you're called to do while you're here on earth, after I've given you eternal life, if you deny serving me, I can deny you being able to reign in the kingdom. But you're still going to be there. You know why? Because a part of me lives in you the moment you believe, called the Holy Spirit. And to deny you entrance into the kingdom would be denying myself, because a part of me is in you. That just shows... The beauty and the grace of God. So yes, there there are consequences. All right. Now, if there's something I want you to take away from this, right, is that whether we are days before the rapture or days before the second coming, time is short. And even more so, you have no idea how long your time is. I say this all the time and I will continue to say it. This place could last another thousand years, but I promise you won't. I promise you won't. And Christ may come and rapture his church tomorrow or 100 years from now, but I don't think any of you will be alive in 100 years. So take advantage of the time you have while you have it. Because how he finds you at the end of that time is how you'll be judged. And I think that is so important, especially if you haven't believed. Because, listen, when you die, that's it. That is your chance right that is your time to take advantage of that don't let those opportunities pass you by now when you think about these two servants i want one question to go home with you which one are you are you the one that's putting him off if would how many people can honestly say and i'm not going to make you raise your hands but how many people can honestly say i hope jesus comes back now and sees what i'm doing <laughs> you know i'm not raising my hand right <laughs> just saying how many people can say that? How many people think, I'd like him to give me a little more time to get things figured out, right? Listen, determine which one you are and do something about it. Because the one thing that we can't buy more of, the one thing we can't negotiate more of, is time. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm asking you would to please bow your heads. We always like to give an invitation if this is your first time here. When I say invitation, I don't mean one of those where I beg for hours and then you come down and that's not what we do. I just believe the word of God's powerful and I believe that God speaks to people through his word. And if there's someone here who's not sure where they stand with Christ, I'm not better than you. There's no believer that's better than you. The difference between us and you is we've trusted him. Believe me, we still don't deserve it. But if you would like me to pray for you, I'm not going to point you out. Just make eye contact, bless those people, and put your heads right back down. I'm just going to pray for you, bless those people. I'm not going to point you out. Bless those people. And it's my prayer that while you have the time, you take advantage of the time. And you know, I always pray for believers also. I just, I feel like when we say the enemy steals away our attention, I feel like we're the greatest victims of that. I really do. And since the time is short, I'm really going to pray that as believers we remember we've got a job to do. He left us here for a reason. I'm going to pray that we get serious about that job so that when he does come back, he finds us doing what's pleasing. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for the love, the mercy, and the kindness you show us. I thank you, God, that all the things you do for us, you do in spite of us because we certainly can't deserve it. And I just pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, Lord, we know that there's never been a person that deserved heaven. But you've graciously offered it to anyone who will believe. And I just pray if they don't know you, that whatever's holding them back, you would just push it out of their mind and they would believe your word and trust your son, Jesus, for their eternal life. And if they make that decision today, you've guaranteed they'll have it. I just pray if they do make that decision, they contact us or a, good Christian friend or organization near them. God, for those of us who believe, we are so easily distracted. We are so easily pulled away from our purpose. Please recenter us. Put us back where we need to be. Let us remember what really matters. Give us a passion to serve you, to love others and draw them close to you. God, just let us live what we profess. And we just pray, God, that, If you don't return to take us home before we come back here together again, that we would come here one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We just thank you for all that you do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thank you, Chad. Those guys do a great job, don't they? Amen. That's right. Um, so today you um, you've got the fourth string preacher again. So we'll see, yeah, we'll see how that goes. But um, we are in a in a series called Kingdom Come from the Book of Matthew. We're getting pretty close to uh, getting done with this gospel, which that's good news. We'll probably be finished sometime in the next two years at least. Um, And today, um, we're going to talk about uh, 10 Sleepy Girls from Matthew 25. And this is a fairly well-known story of Jesus. And um, so we're going to try to have some fresh perspective today on this this story. So um, before we get started, I want to ask you a question. Uh, Has anybody in here ever... Had to go someplace important and forgotten the thing you needed when you before you that you needed there when you got there right, Uh, that's common right. So um, uh, I don't know. Most of you know that we have a son who is uh, currently a guest of the state, and um, when you go there, there's certain things you have to do right. You're not allowed to wear a belt. You're not supposed to wear jewelry, watch, phone, that kind of thing. And you've got to make sure that you've got proper identification. So about a month ago, um, we decided we we were going to go visit Zach, and um, he's currently at what's called the farm on the other side of Indianapolis. And we got to about Indianapolis, and I looked at Sandy, and I said, um, "I I don't have my driver's license." Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, well, in my own defense, I, I hate carrying things in my pocket. And so what I'll do with my wallet is I'll put it in my computer bag that I carry back and forth to work. So that's where it always is. And so I just didn't grab it. So we get there, and we think, well, you know, there's no way we're coming back. So we get there. We think, well, maybe they'll let me in anyway. Maybe. And just so happens she had an expired driver's license in her purse. So we thought, well, just maybe, right? So we get in there, and we show it to them, hoping maybe they won't even notice that it's expired, and no, no dice. And with no amount of pleading was going to make any difference. You can't go in. So Abriana and Sandy went in by themselves, and after my wife cut me to pieces, um, I sat in the car in the parking lot where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I sat there for two hours, and they had a good visit, but you know, I missed the opportunity to see. I just, there, I just wasn't getting in. There wasn't anything to it, and so you know, that experience you think would would um, have changed my life, and now I learned my lesson. So um, I drive an hour to work, and and because I work in Warsaw, and so um, most of my work is done on a computer. So I've got a, you know, they giving me a laptop, and I carry that laptop back and forth, because I never know when I'm going to need to do something, right? I can't leave it there, and I can't leave it at home. I've got to have it. And so on Monday this past week, I drove all the way to Warsaw, got there real early, because I knew we had a, a teacher's meeting that afternoon, so I had to leave work early, got there like at 6.30 in the morning, got out of my car, grabbed my bag, and I thought, man, that's light. No computer call my boss, I'm going home, I'm not going to come back, I'm going to work from home, back home again. So, you know, this is, I mean, we do this, right? I mean, some of our worst dreams, right? We wake up in a cold sweat of something where we've forgotten, we've gone someplace important and forgotten something, right? I mean, this is not uncommon. And uh, Jesus uses this experience, this common experience we have, to explain, to describe something for us. So let's start. We're going to be in Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through and then come back and make some observations about what we have read. So let's just, just sit and ponder what Jesus has to say. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Now the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps, the foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready to went in, who, who were ready went, went, went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the, uh, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So let, let's go back to the beginning of that. So he says, Jesus says, at that time, and of course, that, that makes us ask the question, what time? right? Um, Somehow or another, something having to do with what we've just been talking about in Matthew 24 and 25, or starting now in 25, um, the day the Lord will come. Now, there's a lot of confusion here that Chris kind of talked about last week, right? Is this this the rapture of the church? Is this the end of the millennial kingdom? Is this the second coming after the tribulation? Does it matter? And, you know, maybe it doesn't matter a whole lot because it's just the a question of being ready when the Lord does something, right? Fair enough. We don't have to answer that question. To quote the famous American preacher, Pastor Chris Mosley, worry less about the end of all time and more about the end of your time, right? So he says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So whatever this time is, whichever stage of the kingdom he's talking about, It will be like this story that he's about to tell us. Now, a little bit of a caution and some notes about parables. Not every detail, something about the story will illustrate what the kingdom is like. So before we get stepping into the the parable itself, let's think about parables a little bit. One of the worst things you can do when you read a parable is do something called over-allegorize. Fancy word. Allegorize means that you find a spiritual meaning or a meaning behind every single item in the parable. And sometimes that's okay. Some parables are allegories. And Jesus himself gives us an example of that in the parable of the soils. He says this soil is this and this soil is that, etc., etc. But most of the time, parables are not that. And so what has ended up happening is that, that we get this extreme ridiculousness when it comes to reading a parable. So that the Good Samaritan story becomes not a story about an unlikely guy being a neighbor to somebody who needs help, and becomes some kind of a secret code where that, that the, the man on, that is waylaid on the road is Adam, and the robbers are Satan, the Samaritan is Jesus, and the innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. and You can see where this can go. And so a lot of times that is just taken too far. Most of the time you don't need a secret decoder ring to understand a parable. And generally, the idea of the parable is stated at the end of the story, which is exactly what Jesus does here, right? Therefore be ready. Parables usually use common everyday examples of things that people can understand. And so we understand the the concept of being ready for a wedding. Maybe we don't understand all the cultural things behind it. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but we can get that, right? We can put ourselves in the shoes of the people in the parable, which is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to sit and read the parable and go, well, I can identify with that guy. I can understand where he's coming from, or you identify with the listeners. So you imagine yourself in the audience, in Jesus' audience, and you're listening to the story. And you look for two moments in a parable. You look for an aha moment when you can anticipate the climax. You know something big's coming. You also look for the gasp, right? The thing, the play, spot in the parable where you go, right oh. row. So let's continue. Ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven at that time will be like these ten virgins. Who have, who, have been, who have prepared their lamps to meet the bridegroom. Well, what's that all about? You know, we don't, under, but that, we don't have the cultural background for that. It's not how we do weddings. So, we need to understand that a little bit. So, here's what would happen in a Jewish ancient Jewish wedding. The groom will first travel to the bride's house and negotiate with the father for his daughter. Now, something to think about here a little bit is that weddings and marriage are not surprisingly often used as illustrations in both Jewish and Christian literature for how God interacts with his people, either God with Israel or Jesus with the church. And you see that over and over again in the Bible where they point to marriage and marriage customs and saying, hey, if you think about the way this marriage thing works, that will give you a picture of what it's like when God interacts with his people. Makes good sense. So... This sounds a little bit like Jesus paying the price for the church, right? The, 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 the bridegroom goes and negotiates with the father. He pays a price to the father for her hand. Again, reminding us of the way Jesus paid for the church. He returns home and builds a house or some, uh, some kind of a, a place, a dwelling place on his own father's land for his future bride. Sounds a little familiar. Remember Jesus saying in the book of John, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house? On the night before the wedding, he travels with his crew to the bride's house to get her. Now, this is often a loud and boisterous party, right? There are trumpets sounding. There, there, they have torches. There's a, Here comes the groom. They're marching through the city. Everybody in town knows a groom is about to go get his bride. This is ex- an exciting time. Well, it's no surprise then that in the book of Revelation and places like that, that, it, that the coming of Jesus to get his church is accompanied by loud trumpet sounds. Right? And so people are thinking about that. Then he gathers his bride and her bridesmaids and returns to his house to celebrate the wedding. And so no surprise, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the wedding supper of the lamb. And so when, when John would use that image, people would go, yeah, I, I can get that. That's an image I know about. I've been to those. So we continue. So five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. Now this is when you go, aha! Uh-huh. There's climax. Go, it's going to happen here. You know Jesus is setting us up for something. And again, the, this is a common scene. They know people. They maybe even they've been one of these virgins, or they knew somebody who was right. So they're elbowing each other. Remember that time that Mary did that? She wasn't. She forgot her oil, and then blah blah blah. You know, so they they're thinking about that. You know, so that's what you're supposed to do in your mind. You're supposed to think of a time when either you forgot something important or you knew somebody who forgot something important, right? Now, the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now the climax continues to build. It, it's not common for the groom to run late. And so they're supposed to be up and ready when he comes. So now you know... You're thinking, those five ones, man, they're in a lot of trouble. Because you already know their lamps are going to go out. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. I'm going to pause here and think just a minute. So, one of, the, one of the major themes that you find in the Bible is this concept of being wise versus foolish. And you read about this in places like the book of Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and places like that. And you have to be thinking to yourself because Jesus' audience will know this. They already have a concept of wise and foolish. So as soon as they hear those words, they're, they're, they're thinking back. That's popping for them back to the, like the book of Proverbs and things like that. So who are the wise in biblical thought? The wise are those, according to the Bible, who take the presence of God seriously. And therefore, they are also those who think through the consequences of their actions. They know that God has created this world with something called the law of reaping and sowing. That what I sow, I get back. What I sow, I reap. And so they don't tempt fate, or tempt God, right? Paul says, God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. You don't, if, you don't, if you don't be wise, if you be foolish, you'll, you, it won't work out. It's a very practical way of looking at the world. So a wise student knows, if they get an early start and study a little every day, Tests will be easier to take. Cramming at the last minute doesn't work. The wise athlete knows if I work on my skills every day just a little bit, it has a cumulative effect, right? The wise son visitor makes sure he has his driver's license with him, right? The wise worker makes sure he's got his computer with him. The foolish one doesn't do that. The foolish person does the opposite of those things. And so the wise ones reply, no, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Now, it's easy to assume that you know, these guys or these girls are being selfish. No, they're just being truthful, right? It's not our fault you forgot your, to bring your jars of oil. You know, this is suddenly fall, falls into the category of not my problem, Right, I've got to have enough oil for me. I can't, you know. You should have taken care of yourself. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. And now you go, everybody, everybody, go like this. Go, oh no, oh no, yeah, oh no. This is the oh, rot, row, raggy. You know, this is the part where you're supposed to stop. And see, we become so familiar with these parables, we have a hard time doing this. So as we're going through these parables over the next few weeks. Look for those things. When you're reading them, look for that spot where you go, whoa, no way, right? This is going to be bad. So we go. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, and the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Oh, man. Bad for them. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know know you. Wow. So this is, of course, variously interpreted, as you can imagine. The question becomes, is this supposed to be about unbelievers? Is this supposed to be about believers? Is this supposed to be, you know, if he says, I didn't know you, blah, blah, blah. There's probably something there, but we can't say exactly for sure. Maybe. There are some reasons to believe that this is what Jesus is implying, but don't again. Let's not read too much into it. Just with caution, approach the text with humility, right? Um, Lord, Lord. A lot of times when Jesus says that, we see our minds hop right to, well, he must be talking about Jesus being Lord or God. But Lord was used in that culture just to mean Mister, right? So it might have just been, hey, Mister, open the door right? And no, I can't open the door. You're too late. The rules of the wedding banquet are nobody gets in after the door's shut. I'm sorry. The way it works. And so, you know, we have to kind of be careful about the way we read it, but it could mean that. It could imply that. Um, On the other hand, the person answering might just be a doorkeeper or a servant, might not even be the groom himself, you know, supposedly answering, and his job is to make sure no one crashes the party, and so you does not necessarily represent anyone in particular. Um, you know, and we all, now at this point, everybody in the audience is going to have different responses. Some of you are going to feel sorry for, you know, these five foolish. And as well you should. That's the response that's being looked for. Some of you might say, what a meanie this guy is. Why won't he let them in? Some... Some of you will be saying, serves them right. You know, well, they should have been prepared. What's, what's their deal? Right? There's all kinds of these different responses. These are responses Jesus is trying to get us to have, right? To have these various feelings that, that are evoked by this. No matter what, however you look at it, this Lord, whoever he is, has the right to deny anyone entry for whatever reason he sees fit. He's in charge. And so, should have had your oil with you. Nobody's fault but your own. So then Jesus closes. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Good advice that, right? That's the point of the story. The point of the story is that these virgins, for whatever reason, weren't ready when the groom finally came and they weren't let in. So, in the same way, at that time, in the same way, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Like, you've got to be ready. So let's, um, we'll have a few takeaways, and then we'll, we'll land the plane here. Um, number one. Some people are watchers, and some people are waiters. You know, one of the worst things you can say in the business environment, especially when you are in a meeting with your management, is, I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for this other guy to do something. I'm waiting for this other thing to happen before I can do my job. And almost invariably, that manager will turn to you and say, have you called them? Well, no, I sent him an email call them and find out what's going on and see what you can do to help, right? You don't wait for something else to happen. You, and if you are waiting, you know why you have to wait, that there's a reason for it, and that's what you should be responding to me with, right? Some people wait for something to happen, and some people watch for something to happen. The difference between being wise and fool, foolish. Number two. A crisis will almost always separate the wise from the foolish. That's what happened in this story, right? So we get a weather report that says that this weekend there's gonna be two feet of snow and people lose their dang minds, right? You don't already have milk and bread at home, <laughs> you gotta descend on Walmart like a pack of wolves. Just because there's going to be snow, you're not more prepared for life than that. You show up at at work without your computer, really? <laughs> a crisis will reveal that, won't it? That, that, I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not criticizing people who have to go get bread and milk when there's a big snowstorm coming. But the the concept is there, right? You you know the the concept of being wise versus foolish when a crisis occurs. Those people, you see that. You can see the separation between those. That's exactly what happened in the story. These, these, you had wise virgins and foolish virgins, and a crisis came, and immediately you knew who, which ones were which. Which ones had thought through the consequences of their actions, and which ones had not thought through the consequences of their actions. And needless to say, much will be revealed at the judgment, right? About the wisdom and foolishness of ourselves. Number three, there are some things that you just can't wait to the last minute to do, right? If, if you only study for your final, the night before the final, it ain't going to work. You know, if you only practice your pitching, if you're a pitcher in fast-pitch softball the day before the game, you won't pitch very good the next day. It's just a fact of life, right? There's some things you just can't wait to the last minute to do. You can't wait until the last minute of your life to get right with God. Don't work that way. That doesn't mean you can't be right with God at the last last minute of your life. There are many deathbed conversions. But waiting until the last minute doesn't work very well. That's what happened to these virgins. They waited until the last minute to get their oil. Too late now. Should have thought of that earlier. Uh, Pastor Nate talked about this last week, his... Now, Pastor Chris talked about it. Pastor Nate also talked to me about it later because they both told the same story, that their their plan for life was to wait until the last second before they died to become a believer. You can do that. I don't recommend it. Four. Um, You can't always rely on someone else to provide what it is you should have provided for yourself. I can't get in to see Zach with my wife's driver's license. I can't. I can't use somebody else's computer. My work is on my computer. I have to take it with me. I don't do my work then if I don't have it. You can't get by on someone else's faith, you can't get by on your parents' faith. You can't get by on your brother's or sister's faith. You can't get by on your preacher's faith. You can only get by on your faith. Yours is the one that counts. Your readiness is the one that counts, not anybody else's. A crisis, five, a crisis will not come on your timetable or in a way that you expect. It's not fair that the bridegroom was late. Some of them missed out because the bridegroom ran later than what they thought he would. But guess what? Life's not fair. It's just not. Uh, if this is any story about any any takeaway from this story, it's that it's not fair. I can't believe he wouldn't let them in. Sorry, life's not fair. You got to think ahead. You got to be prepared. You got to be ready. So let's let's finish up. So you, what can you do to respond to this? Well, if you aren't a Jesus follower, if you aren't a believer, I want you to be. And I believe that if you do that, not only will you do life better, but your life will be better. Does that mean everything will always work out the way you want it to? Does that mean you'll always have smooth sailing? No. But you will do life better, and you will be, and your life will be better as a Jesus follower. But I don't want you to be a believer in Jesus because I said so. I want you to be a believer in Jesus because there was a man named Matthew who was studying what he wrote today. And Matthew walked around with Jesus for three years and he saw what the guy did. And he watched his friend get murdered on a Roman cross. And three days later, he saw him alive again. And he wrote it down so we could know about it. And there was a guy named Mark. Who had the same experience. And then he, this guy walked, went around with Peter. And wrote down a bunch of stuff Peter said. And he saw Jesus get killed. And he saw Jesus alive again. And he wrote it down. For us to read. And then there was this guy named Luke. Who hung around with a guy named Paul. And he went and he talked to all these people. And he, he wrote down what they wrote. And he investigated it thoroughly. He said. And he wrote it down and documented for, a, for posterity that Jesus had died on a cross. And three days later, he was alive again. And there was a guy named John who was best friends with Jesus. And he saw him die and then saw him alive again and wrote it down for us. See, these things are not... We we make a mistake when we think that these things are true because they're in the Bible. They're in the Bible because they're true. It's the other way around. And these guys wrote this stuff down, and they were reliable. And they handed this stuff down to other people. And then there was this guy named Paul. And Paul... Paul believed so firmly in his Jewishness, in the Jewish religion, that he was willing to round up people who believed in Jesus and kill them for it. And then one day, he says, I was on a horse riding to Damascus, and I was confronted by this same person, this Jesus that I didn't believe in. And in one day, he became a believer in Jesus as a result. And after that, he set the world on fire, preaching about Jesus. And he wrote this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas would be another name for Peter. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living. He's telling his readers, listen, you, you can go talk to those people. You don't believe me? Go talk to them. They're still alive. Although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Now, James was the brother of Jesus. And I've I've heard people say this before, and I love it. What would it take for you to believe that your older brother was the son of God? You'd have to see him die and be raised again. James is an interesting character. Then to all the apostles... And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. These are real people in history. These things actually happened. This isn't just some made-up thing. This is an event. And so if you're not a believer in Jesus and you want to be ready, because Jesus says, I'm coming back. And if nothing else, remember Worry less about the end of all time and more about the end of your time. You don't know when the master's coming. You don't know when the bridegroom's going to call you. Could be today. Could walk out those doors right now. If you are a Jesus follower, you you might want to start asking yourself, am am I ready for this? And if I'm not ready, what do I got to do to get ready? Because I got to get ready. Jesus says, you don't know. You know when it's going to happen. Just like those five foolish, bridegroom, five foolish virgins. Are you going to be foolish or are you going to be wise? Kevin talked about earlier about equipping yourself. Nobody else can equip you. I can't read the Bible for you. I can't study for you. I can't listen to podcasts for you. We live in a day and age when there's no excuse for anyone to not be very well informed and very well educated about their Christian faith. Because it's so accessible. It's just out there for everything. I, you know, I, 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 I've said this before. I said, I said well, I, I think that if, I, if I'm a Christian, I'm going to try to listen to at least a sermon in my car rather than Bob and Tom. What are you doing with your time? How do you think that's going to go over when the bridegroom comes? What did you do with your time? I put you in a car for a half hour a day driving to work. What'd you do with that time? I mean, it makes a difference. Are you going to be wise? Are you going to be foolish? Right? What are you going to do to prepare yourself? And ask yourself this question, and then we'll wind down. We'll finish up. What would our world, what would your family, what would your work look like if everyone there acted as if they were completely prepared for either the end of time or the end of our time. What would be different? What would you do different? What would you do different if you lived a kingdom lifestyle every day? What if you never passed up an opportunity to show kindness? Right, we laughed and joked about having your computer or having your driver's license. Ah, that's just everyday stuff, right? The stuff that really counts when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. This is what he's talking about. Be forgiving. Be merciful. Show grace to somebody. Help out somebody in need. Encourage somebody at work. Be kind to the guy that you can't stand. Right? Make a point of it. Practice those things. And let me ask you a question. Is that a world you'd want to live in? Then become that. Become whatever, right? God put us here to, to rule the world. He really did. And what he means for, about that is you have control of this space right here. You got control over this. What are you doing with it? In what way are you? working that out. So I'm going to leave you with one thought from one of our modern-day poets. Nothing's wrong just as long as you know that someday I will. Someday, somehow, I'm going to make it all right. But not right now. I know you're wondering when. From Someday, Somehow by Nickelback. The question isn't whether or not you can be prepared. You either will or you won't. The great philosopher, Master Yoda, said, do or do not, there is no try. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we uh, come before you this morning thankful for your word and thankful for the the things that you give us. And Father, we, we, we ask humbly that you forgive us for the times when we haven't made ourselves ready and that we haven't had a sense of urgency when it comes to your kingdom and our lives. Father, help us, give us the strength to be disciplined in our approach to your kingdom and the things that you would have us do. Father, help us to live out exactly what, you told, what your son told us to pray when he said, your kingdom come and your will be done. Father, not my kingdom and not my will, but yours. Help me to live that every day and help us all to recognize that we don't know when the bridegroom will come. Our job is to be ready when it happens. We thank you for your son who died on the cross so that we can always get second chances and start over. And we are amazed at the grace that you provide. These things we pray in your son's most holy name. Amen.